Welcome to the Shadows of Noir podcast, the movie show where we discuss all things film noir. My name is Dan, and I'm a classic movie fanatic with a special appreciation for the complex world of film noir. And I'll be your main guide for the show and our accompanying website that you can find online at shadowsofnoir.com. Welcome to episode nine, everybody. Any returning listeners, thanks so much for coming back. And anybody listening to the podcast for the first time, welcome. Today, we are discussing film noir and the Hollywood blacklist. Now, we have mentioned the Hollywood blacklist a few times in some previous episodes, but haven't really got into the details much. So today's goal is to give an outline slash primer on the subject, because similarly to our discussion of film noir in World War II and that overlap, we do have intentions of a much more in-depth series on this subject because it really is a very large subject and a very important one to the discussion of film noir in general. And so today, the goal is to be a little bit more broad in the discussion. We'll go through the timeline. We'll go through the events of HUAC and the blacklist events that uh, came after it. We'll talk about many of the major noir figures that were affected by it. And we'll also take a little bit of time at the end to talk about some of the reasons why film noir was a little bit more disproportionately affected by the Hollywood blacklist proceedings. So that will be our little bit of a tee up. And hopefully later on, we can go back and do a real deep dive on it because it is an interesting subject, like we said. So also just to get this started, um, just as an opening message, I guess, this is very much a political topic in nature, certainly. Um, there's no way around that. Um, just wanted to come out and say at the beginning that the real intention here is film history. And this is not a political podcast, not trying to advocate or disparage any political views once whatsoever. But this podcast about film noir there is really no getting around the intersection with the political scene of the 1940s and the 1950s. And I think that we would be doing quite the disservice to the entire subject and the whole zeitgeist of film noir if we were to avoid this just because it might be a little bit of a touchy subject. So trying to get out there um, and branch out, but just trying to also say up front that the goal here is film history and we're going to try to talk about the events as accurately as possible from the research that we've done and to try and make some educated speculations about why the politics of the 1940s and 1950s that were going on at the same time as film noir had such an unbelievable um, connection, I guess you could say. So also to make a call out at the beginning in terms of the research, had to do a lot of research for this episode. It was something I knew in general, but didn't have enough uh, background knowledge to do a full episode on the book City of Nets by Otto Friedrich. Unbelievable book. If you haven't read it, uh, was a major source for the research in here. And also the podcast, You Must Remember This, with Karina Longworth, has an extended series on the Hollywood Blacklist, not specific to film noir, 
But she does have uh, an episode, for instance, on John Garfield, who is one of the major film noir players that are affected. And it just talks more broadly about the entire situation that was going on. So that was also a great background resource that we wanted to call out. And then also went just old fashioned to Wikipedia and IMDb for a lot of this because the list of people that were affected by the Hollywood blacklist is very long and didn't know a lot of people on there. So ended up going through a lot of uh, filmographies and learning about a lot of lesser known people um, that were affected by the Hollywood blacklist in order to prepare for this show. So all that being said, let's go ahead and dive right in. So the word blacklist sometimes is used a little bit more generally to talk about somebody that might have been ostracized or, you know, shunned a little bit or um, specific to work, you know, kept out of work or not hired because of a variety of factors. And in Hollywood, you did have a little bit of blacklisting for uh, other reasons outside of political beliefs. But we really are talking today about the larger scale effort between the Hollywood studios and the House Un-American Activities Committee and the FBI that were each working to keep certain people out of work in Hollywood, i.e. not contributing to the making of motion pictures because of either past political ties or um, political affiliations that they held or even current uh, affiliations or beliefs that they held that were felt to be un-American at the time post-World War II. So that is really what we're talking about in terms of the Hollywood blacklist here. And that's usually what people are referring to when they talk about it, um, much more so than somebody being blacklisted for a non-political reason. So where to begin when begin when talking about the Hollywood blacklist? I think that the most appropriate start is the formation of the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, in 1938. So Congress approves the formation of this committee, and right off the bat, really, the chairman, who was a congressman from Texas, his name was Martin Dees, he declares that uh, Hollywood is a quote-unquote hotbed of communism, and he starts to make his initial raids or investigations into Hollywood subversion in 1938, the same year that HUAC is established. And really, the early um, probes didn't really yield anything. They were kind of um, laughed off to a certain extent. And it wasn't until 1940 when a former executive secretary of the Los Angeles branch of the Communist Party threw out some names of people in Hollywood that he said were part of the Communist Party. And that included some big names at the time. It included Frederick March, it included James Cagney, and future legend of film noir Humphrey Bogart. So that was really in 1940 was when the, the investigations or the actual in-person interrogations really took a little bit of a, an upturn in seriousness. And they were questioned, and for the most part, there was exoneration. 
Um, they declared that there was no communist association with these people and the House on American Activities Committee was happy and Hollywood was happy. Everybody was, was pretty much set. So 1940, you get a little bit of an uptick, um, but everything's fine, essentially. And then fast forward until 1944. Now, in early 1944, you have a new organization formed in Hollywood, and it's called the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. And the organizer or founding um, mastermind behind it was Sam Wood, who was an old school, very conservative director in Hollywood. But there were also a lot of really prominent stars and people of the industry that were more on the right end of the political spectrum that joined in on this organization in an effort to keep motion pictures showing the American ideals and the American messages that they thought uh, were true to the country. So you also have people like Robert Taylor, Barbara Stanwyck, Gary Cooper, Walt Disney, Ginger Rogers, John Wayne, Clark Gable, uh, director John Ford. They're also part of the commencement of this committee in 1944. And shortly after forming, really, this committee is going back to HUAC and saying to them, essentially, you know, there is really a lot of communist infiltration in the movie industry, and you need to come back out here and do more investigations because the subversive messages are being written into these movies. They're ending up on the, the final pictures that the American people are seeing, and you need to come back here and try and weed out this communist subversion that exists in this industry. And they didn't come back and resume investigations immediately. After all, this was 1944. World War II was still going on. Didn't end until the summer of 1945. But once World War II ended and the war against fascism had concluded and the new threat became the war against communism... In 1946, the fears are mounting and the general consensus is moving a little bit towards the right. And you have, in the 1946 national elections, much more conservative shift in terms of who is elected in Congress. And also in 1946, you have a new head of HUAC, and that was J. Parnell Thomas. Now, he was one of the founding members in 1938 and just by way of seniority, really, he makes it to the top of the ladder by 1946, and he becomes the head of HUAC. And he is one of the important people that wants to go back to Hollywood and um, do more investigations and a lot of publicity around it as well. He's the one, if you ever listen to or watch any of the things that were recorded of the 1947 HUAC um, actual testimonies in Washington. He's the one with the gavel, very famously cutting people off um, when they're trying to speak. And, you know, the the whole um, contention around all those testimonies that were given. But he, he is the one really behind that. And he comes to the head of HUAC in 1946. Also in 1946, you have Churchill, who gives his famous Iron Curtain speech, and you have Truman, who is vowing to Congress to contain the advance of communism anywhere on the globe. So 
effectively, the Cold War has begun. There is a new head of HUAC, and Congress has shifted to the right in terms of conservatism. And in May 1947 is when we get J. Parnell Thomas coming out and saying that there are hundreds of people in the film industry that have been named as communists. And it turns out very similarly to the assertions made by Joseph McCarthy uh, years later. This list was essentially made up, but it was effective in that the spotlight had essentially turned back towards Hollywood where any underlying communist infiltration could be showcased and then weeded out and removed from motion pictures that millions of Americans were seeing every single week at the local theater. And then come the subpoenas. So to deal with this issue, HUAC has decided that it's going to bring people from Hollywood to Washington, D.C. to testify in front of the committee. And they send out subpoenas to really two groups. So what became known as the friendly group and the unfriendly group. The friendly group were largely moguls and really influential people who were committed to trying to find any communist infiltration in Hollywood and get rid of it. And then you have the what became known as the unfriendly group, which were people that were actually suspected of being the subversives and, and writing into or directing films that carried these un-American messages in them. So the unfriendly group gets together and they became known as the Unfriendly 19. There were 19 of them. And they get together to discuss strategy about how they're going to answer questions when they are put up on the stand in this testimony situation. And at the same time, there's buzz all over Hollywood. Obviously, this is big doings. Um, and you get a few people that come to the support of those unfriendly witnesses. And three in particular are John Houston, William Wyler, and then writer Philip Dunn. And they form their own committee for the First Amendment, which really goes along with the strategy that the Unfriendly 19 adopted for their testimony. So rather than avoid answering questions entirely or leaning on the Fifth Amendment and not self-incriminating themselves, what the Unfriendly 19 have decided is that when they get to Washington, D.C. and they are asked these questions, they are going to lean on the First Amendment and essentially claim that Congress has no right to investigate them because they have no right to restrict free speech because of the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. And at this point, you might be thinking, what in the world does all of this have to do with film noir? Ah, that's where we can actually take a look at who made up this unfriendly witness group. So, among the unfriendly 19 witnesses, we have Dalton Trumbo, Edward Dimitrick, Adrian Scott, Albert Maltz, Robert Rawson, all people that in the first few years of film noir's classic era have significant influence. Now, I think it was perhaps the first time I heard um, about how film noir was disproportionately affected by the Hollywood blacklist. I think it was in the commentary of 
maybe brute force um, commentary by Alan Silver and James Ursini. It's certainly written about in their books and many places as well. But that's what we get here, where we have 19 unfriendly witnesses and five of them have major film noir ties. So director Edward Dimitrik and Adrian Scott had collaborated on Murder My Sweet in 1944, Cornered, and Crossfire. Crossfire being one of the extremely important films that came out just before the HUAC hearings and brought a big social issue of anti-Semitism to the screen. It came out very much alongside Gentleman's Agreement, um, but Crossfire was no doubt a film noir. And it was one of the films that was viewed partly as a criticism of the country and thus un-American. So you have Edward Dimitrik and Adrian Scott. You also have Albert Maltz, the screenwriter who wrote This Gun for Hire. He wrote Mildred Pierce. He wrote The Red House. You have Dalton Trumbo, who wrote Jealousy. He wrote The Gangster. Um, you also have Robert Rawson. He wrote The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. He wrote Johnny O'Clock. He wrote Desert Fury. All these films with significant ties to film noir by the end of 1947. And even beyond those witnesses that were most prolific in terms of their film noir associations, you also have, for instance, Lester Cole, who wrote Among the Living. You have Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote the screenplay for Laura. You have Lewis Milestone, who directed The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, um, based off of Robert Rawson's screenplay. You have a lot of ties to this newly budding genre or style or movement, um, whatever word you like to use to describe film noir, you have a lot of direct connection to it in terms of the original Unfriendly 19. And as you'll see afterwards, the people that were blacklisted uh, well after the 1947 HUAC hearings. So October 1947 is when everybody gets to Washington and the proceedings start on October 20th. The friendly witnesses were actually called first. Jack Warner was the very first person to give testimony. Then Louis B. Mayer, both of them naming people that they believed to be in the Communist Party. Other friendly witnesses were Walt Disney, Ann Rand, Sam Wood, Maury Riskin, Leo McCary, Fred Nibbler Jr., and Adolph Menju, Robert Taylor, Gary Cooper, Ronald Reagan, those people all took the stand in advocation of these investigations and trying to root out the communist infiltration in Hollywood. So that was the first week of the proceedings, really, was the friendly witnesses. And then Sunday on October 26, you actually have a radio program that was put together by the Committee for the First Amendment, and that was broadcast out as Hollywood Fights Back, and that was kind of a public display of support for the unfriendly witnesses that were going to be taking the stand the next week. And when the 19 witnesses actually reached back out to Hollywood and asked for even more support than that, you have Howard Hughes offering the Committee for the First Amendment a plane to fill up with Hollywood supporters, fly to Washington, D.C., and be there in person as a show of support. 
people like Gene Kelly, Judy Garland, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Catherine Hepburn, Myrna Loy, Frank Sinatra, Rita Hayworth. Um, I mean, it's just quite an impressive list in terms of star power that ends up coming out to Washington, D.C. in support of these unfriendly 19 who will begin their testimony the next Monday morning. And they actually do get there in time to be there in person as support. So it turns out that not all 19 end up getting called to the stand in 1947. The very first person to get called is probably the most outspoken of the unfriendly 19. He's also um, very much um, vocal about his ties to communism. That was John Howard Lawson. He was a screenwriter. Dalton Trumbo took the stand the next day. Albert Maltz, Alva Bessie, Samuel Ornitz, Herbert Bieberman, Edward Dimitrik, Adrian Scott, Ring Lardner Jr., Lester Cole. All 10 of these witnesses were called. All 10 were non-cooperative in the view of the committee. They were not answering the questions that they were asked. They were they were actively trying to um, say statements, even though some of them were not allowed to uh, read statements. Essentially, they were just combative. And I think it was John Houston who said afterwards that he really disagreed with everything that was going on. He was part of the formation of the Committee for the First Amendment, but he also greatly disagreed with how the unfriendly witnesses approached these testimonies. And um, it turned out that in November of 1947, the chairman, J. Parnell Thomas, asks Congress to cite these 10 for contempt of Congress, and they become the infamous Hollywood 10 who would then go on a few years later to serve actual jail time for their contempt of Congress in these proceedings. And so what is Hollywood going to do? What are the moguls, the really influential people in Hollywood going to do about these proceedings, about the non-cooperation? Actually, it turns out on the very same day that Thomas asks Congress to cite these 10 for contempt of Congress, the Famous Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. You have about 50 Hollywood executives come together and discuss and then ultimately decide upon the fate of these 10 people in terms of their jobs in Hollywood. And it was not unanimous. There were people that opposed it, but the majority agreed that these 10 people should be fired from their respective studios and the powers that be at this meeting put together a committee and they release what becomes known as the Waldorf Statement, saying that they would not employ any communists or subversives or anybody that could be in an attempt to overthrow the government. And we have the start, really, of this major blacklist of withholding employment or firing anybody who is currently employed if they fall into any of those buckets. And we start to get towards the end of 1947, and Congress does indeed vote to convict the Hollywood 10 of contempt of Congress. The vote was 347 to 17, so overwhelming majority to convict 
these 10 Hollywood witnesses who were not cooperative with the HUAC committee. You also have the moguls and the powers that be who have started the blacklist in terms of we are going to release these people from employment. We are also vowing not to employ any known communists or subversives in the future. And of the people that were affected, you have several that were very much part of the early days of film noir's classic era. So where do we go from there? Because as it turns out, this really only ends up being the tip of the iceberg. And in 1948-1949, you have HUAC and the FBI who send investigators out. They continue to go around Hollywood asking questions, really. And you also get the start of a lot of loyalty oaths and declarations against communism. And those were not really... Um, isolated to Hollywood. They were um, all over the country, really. And also in this time period, you get this kind of gold standard that is established in terms of, quote unquote, proving or giving significant evidence that somebody is a subversive or a communist. And that comes through the way of naming somebody's name because, you know, people could effectively just say they weren't or anything like that. But if somebody goes before the FBI or HUAC and says to them that this person is a threat, they are a communist, they are subversive, whatever, that becomes the real test of whether or not that person is going to face major scrutiny and potentially be part of the blacklist. And so soon you have this next kind of stage or next grouping of people that become part of the blacklists or affected in some way by it. And there are three really important film noir presences that are in this grouping. You have Peter Lorre, you have Edward G. Robinson, and you have Orson Welles, that by the end of 1949, all three are called out. Now, remember, Peter Lorre was in... Stranger on the Third Floor, he was also in The Maltese Falcon, two of the most important pieces in terms of the beginning of the classic era of film noir, and he was quite the important person in the early years beyond that, and he actually decides to just leave the country. It was too much for him. He didn't want the interrogations. He returns to Germany, where he had emigrated from before World War II, and he goes to live there. Also going to Europe is Orson Welles. There were a few other reasons that kind of just made Europe a little bit more of a safe, logical place for him to be living in the late 1940s. So he goes as well. And Edward G. Robinson, who has perhaps the most film noir credits of any person throughout the classic era of film noir, especially if you look at Starting in 1944, he is in Double Indemnity, Woman in the Window, Scarlet Street, The Stranger, Red House, All My Sons, Key Largo. By then, he is denounced and goes on to fight these allegations. And he wasn't really barred from employment or flat out fired, but the roles that he started to be offered after this happened, started to go down in significance or importance quite a bit. And he continues to be very prominent in film noir, 
but these allegations that have been put against him really affect the caliber of role that he is able to secure in films afterward. And another notable film noir personality to call out during this kind of transitional um, blacklisting period after the Hollywood 10, but before using June 1950 as a rough kind of guideline for the stage, because it was in June of 1950 that Counterattack published the Red Channels list, which named a a little bit more than 140 people in radio and television who were suspected communists. So a lot of people were identified in that list in June of 1950. So in that like middle period between the Hollywood 10 and that list, one other major film noir person was Hans Eisler. Now he was a composer and he was actually interviewed at the HUAC hearings he was referred to as the Karl Marx of communism in the musical field. And his film noir credits from 1943 to 1947 included composing the music for Hangman Also Die, Jealousy, Deadline at Dawn, and The Woman on the Beach. So one more person before the Red Channels publication comes out in June of 1950. Now, That Red Channels list that comes out and goes on to name more than 140 stars in film, radio, and television includes some of the names we've already talked about, Edward G. Robinson, for instance, or Orson Welles. But in large part, it really acts to widen the net, and in doing so, starts to include a lot more film noir players. So, That is where a lot of my IMDb research and a little bit of Wikipedia research had to come in because I didn't know a lot of these people. Um, People like Lee J. Cobb, who was um, mentioned in it, Joseph Losey, Howard De Silva, those kind of major noir players who are listed in Red Channels, you know, jumped out at me. But um, certainly the, the tale is quite long. But even if you're just to focus really on the top section in terms of famous people listed in Red Channels and most prolific in their film noir associations, that bucket is quite robust. So probably the most famous of which that haven't spoken about yet is John Garfield. Now, the series in the You Must Remember This podcast on the Blacklist has a specific episode dedicated to John Garfield. I would point anybody to that if they're really interested in hearing about what John Garfield's um, Hollywood Blacklist story looked like. But he certainly is a massive star and was one of the most important people in terms of film noir's evolution in the classic era. He has no less than eight film noir films under his belt by the time he tragically passes away in 1952. Also in the Red Channels list, actors Paul Stewart, Luther Adler, Howard Duff, um, Sam Jaffe, a lot of really iconic noir faces that if you're watching 1940s and early 1950s noir, you will just see over and over again. And mentioned before, Joseph Losey, 
He was a director with a bunch of noirs under his belt by the time he retires. He starts off with The Boy with Green Hair in 1948, but goes on to do The Lawless, M, The Prowler, The Big Night, Time Without Pity, The Concrete Jungle. Um, He is one of the most prolific classic era film noir directors. And a lot of the people in this list go on to testify in 1951 when HUAC resumes their investigations, some of which end up naming names, um, somebody like Lee J. Cobb, for instance, but some of which do not. Someone like John Garfield, who, when he is interviewed in 1951 in front of HUAC, he does not name names. So that decision that somebody made in terms of if they were called out and then they were asked to come to the 1951 hearings, if they chose to name names, then there was a very good chance that they could at least continue their career um, in Hollywood somewhat to the effect that it had been previously. But if they made the decision not to, there's a very good chance that they would be blacklisted to further extent. And many more people, similar to Peter Lorre, ended up in exile. Um, Several people went to Great Britain. In fact, that was part of the reason that there was a bigger noir infusion in the late 1940s, early 1950s in Great Britain is because you have people like Jules Dassin or Cy Enfield that have gone over to there to escape the blacklist and are bringing along with them their noir stylistics and their noir storytelling. Edward Dimitrik, who was part of the Hollywood 10, ended up in Great Britain and making a film called Obsession, or I think it was also released under the name um, The Hidden Room. That was important to note because mentioned that Hollywood 10 was convicted, but there were several years of appeals, and it wasn't until April of 1950 that the Supreme Court decided 6-2 to two not to review the Hollywood 10's conviction for contempt, and that was when they needed to start getting together and getting everything in order to serve out their prison sentence. In that prison sentence, Edward Dimitrik was somebody who kind of reverse course and wanted to come back out once the HUAC hearings resumed and name names, which he did later on. And he was able to kind of continue his career in the United States because of that decision. But others of the Hollywood 10, somebody like Dalton Trumbo or Albert Maltz, for instance, they did not make that decision to change course. And upon being released from their prison sentence, had to write under assumed names and um, were very much still victim of the blacklisting that didn't end up kind of um, breaking up until the late 1950s, early 1960s. And I mentioned a few times, actually, that HUAC resumed interrogations in 1951 Uh, I think it might have been a little misleading the way I said it before. They started in 1951. It actually extended for several years. It wasn't a a quick kind of couple weeks of interrogation like in 1947. This was something that was extended out for multiple years. And those hearings were the source of a brand new list of people that had been named 
um, in front of the committee. So we get really a, a lot more people, um, over 150 more. In 1952, I think that the tally from the HUAC publication was 324 people that had been named. Um, but in that kind of last stage, which extends quite a few years, actually, um, after HUAC resumed their hearings, you get a lot more prominent noir people. Um, Sam Levine, who is um, one of the most famous uh, noir actors to be named, he comes in that stage as well. Art Smith at the same time. Um, you do get a lot of people that are named in that stage that have a lot of noir credits, but at the same time had really robust careers. So I think you could make the argument that, you know, if somebody has eight or nine or 10 film noir appearances, but they were in, you know, over 200 things and throughout their career, maybe they're not, you know, a noir specialist per se. Um, so people like uh, John Ireland or Jeff Corey, for instance, they they were in a lot of noir pictures, but they were in a lot of things in general. So um, maybe you can make that kind of argument. Uh, there's also a lot of people that are in a lot of noir movies, but they're in maybe smaller, uncredited roles. Um, they get named in that in that um, last stage as well. But really, you do have some other real big ones that come in that um, in that time period. Directors John Barry. John Cromwell, Michael Gordon, Abe Polanski, stars uh, like George Tyne or Barbara Belgettis are also named in that last kind of stage. So it uh, I know really throwing out a lot of names here um, and might be a little bit of a confusing maze to try and keep track of, but I think in a sense that might be a little appropriate even because it probably was quite the um, confusing thing to try and keep track of after 1950, who was naming whom and the different people that were moving outside of the United States to try and make a living or writing under new names, et cetera, et cetera. So it was quite the maze of trying to keep track of who exactly was on this blacklist if you weren't in the industry because it was um, a moving dynamic target. But thankfully, towards the end of the 1950s, and especially in 1960, the blacklist begins to break. You have Dalton Trumbro, who is starting to get some screen credit for the work he does on Exodus and Spartacus in 1960. And before that, Jules Dassin, who had left and went to France and made the film Refifi, that actually gets screened in the United States. And I believe that his, um, if I memory serves me correctly from the research, I believe that he was shown as the director on that when it went back to the United States to be screened. So that was even before um, Dalton Trumbo was credited in 1960. So those are kind of the first hints of breaking of the blacklist. And um, after a few years beyond that, it had completely disintegrated, essentially. And so that is really our kind of crazy consolidated 
history of the blacklist and the overlap with film noir in terms of who was on the blacklist, who was prominent in the classic era of film noir. And it really begs the question of why. So in reviewing the filmographies, like I said, on Wikipedia and IMDb of all these people that were on the Hollywood blacklist, film noir certainly jumps out. Musicals uh, jump out as well in terms of a genre that had a lot of people associated with the blacklist. But the question really comes down to why was film noir, as um, Alan Silver and James Orsini, I think, said it, disproportionately affected by this Hollywood blacklist? And I think that there are a few things that we can really highlight here. And just to note, really, that these kind of educated guesses slash conclusions are really kind of my own thoughts have not got these from other places or read in any existing film noir literature, but I do feel like they make a little bit of sense. So wanted to uh, talk about them. So the first being that the birth of film noir or the development of film noir in 1940 and 1941, if we go back and look at that, we get to see a lot of people that are involved in those early films that would end up being on the blacklist. So that means that the roots of film noir's classic era were established by people that held perhaps, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but held perhaps views of what would be, you know, somewhat representative of the um, Hollywood consensus. So, if you look at Stranger on the Third Floor, for instance, you have Peter Lorre. If you look at Orson Welles and the innovations of Citizen Kane that had so much to do with the um, laying of the foundation for the visual style of film noir, you also have that. And if you look at the Maltese Falcon in particular, you have John Huston and Humphrey Bogart, who were not technically blacklisted, but were both part of the Committee for the First Amendment. And furthermore, in the Maltese Falcon, you have Peter Lorre in there again, and you also have the source novel coming from Dashiell Hammett. Now, I didn't even mention the fact that Dashiell Hammett was on the blacklist as well. So if you look at those films collectively, specifically the Maltese Falcon, you really have a lot of the things that are established in 1940, 1941, that would end up helping form this classic era of film noir by people that held this kind of, you know, left of center view, uh, I think you could say. And since you get those kind of uh, guardrails put up, then whatever follows, you know, naturally, you could probably make the argument that um, would continue with somewhat of the same sensibility. So that, I think, is one real big piece of it, is the origins of film noir in 1940 and 1941 that made it much more likely that newer films that were made in the same vein might have similar underlying messages. And that really kind of gets me to the next major point, and that is 
just the overall themes of film noir. Now, we've talked about this um, a few times, and some of the themes that we've discussed are things like cynicism or paranoia or obsession, vulnerability, guilt, uh, the reversal of the American dream, an inescapable past. If we kind of take a little bit of a step back and look at those themes in aggregate and how they are just very pessimistic in nature and often revealing tougher, treacherous parts of life, if we're looking at films that have these kind of messages about how dark things can be, certainly that means that we're looking at something that is flawed, a, a you know world that is flawed with dark settings, with characters that have flaws, they're, they're making mistakes, they're criminals that are collaborating with other criminals, etc. They're, they're all revolving around crime, obviously, but... If we don't have these kind of situations that would lead to those, then we don't have these stories. So just by way of having things that are broken, I guess would probably be too strong a word, but things that um, have inconsistencies and that is part of the reason that these crime stories start to unfold, that it naturally is a little bit of a criticism of wherever these films are being made. And as we've mentioned, film noir is so much primarily an American movement, uh, genre, style, etc. Something else that is really important too is that we talked about on several occasions, how film noir was really not afraid of bringing social issues to light. Things like racism, anti-Semitism, political corruption, etc. When you are bringing a social issue to light in a film, obviously that means that there is a problem. And if you're calling out these issues, that certainly can be seen as somebody who is cynical of the current system and perhaps even ungrateful or resentful of that current system. So, i.e., if if that system is the American system, un-American. So I do think that that kind of link can be made and possibly could be one of the biggest reasons why film noir and the people who made film noir pictures were overly affected by the Hollywood blacklist. So I'm sure that was a tiny bit of a ramble, but it is a little bit difficult to put into words um, for me, but I hope that at least you got the gist of it and could kind of see where I was going in terms of how film noir was being perceived then or how we could retroactively look at it today. So, again, this is not supposed to be a political podcast. This is a film history podcast, not trying to advocate or disparage any views whatsoever. But film noir did not exist in a vacuum. And its overlap with the Hollywood blacklist is certainly meriting a discussion. And to 
avoid that conversation simply because politics has become uh, such a sensitive area of discussion in the divided times that we do live in nowadays. Just don't feel like it would be um, appropriate and we would be kind of taking the easy way out to not discuss it. So it is something that is largely touched on in film noir literature, but wanted to give everybody just a 10,000 foot overview. In summary, we talked about the formation of HUAC, the um, beginnings of the Hollywood blacklist in the early 1940s, the HUAC hearings of 1947, the Red Channels list that came out, and the subsequent um, resumption of HUAC hearings 1951 and onward, and all of the people that were named as being associated with the Communist Party or with communist-style um, organizations who were barred from working in Hollywood or, in rare occasions, even jailed because of their non-cooperation with congressional committees. So hopefully that was a good primer and teed us up for a much more in-depth discussion um, at a later time when we can really do this topic justice in a more extended series. If you are enjoying the podcast and looking to help us out, word of mouth recommendations are so great. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify are are super because they help us uh, move up the uh, algorithm ranks and get in front of more people so that more people can uh, hop on and enjoy the discussions. We have our Patreon as well, where you can go in there and support the show. Uh, we also have a discussion board on there with Ask Me Anything style uh, discussions where you can post any kind of questions. Uh, we'll do our research on our side and answer those in a monthly Ask Me Anything extra episode for Patreon subscribers. So thank you once again for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, hope this episode was a good sneak peek into the overlap between film noir and the Hollywood blacklist. And Next episode, we are coming up on episode 10, actually. And because of that, and also because when we look back at our existing episodes, episode number one is by far the most popular episode. And that was when we did What is Film Noir? So what we're going to do is episode 10, we're going to do a revised and expanded version of What is Film Noir? Because a little bit more comfortable now. Um, can certainly expand on some of the things that were discussed in that episode. And if that is indeed our most popular topic, we want to make sure that we put our best foot forward there. So tune back in for next episode where we're going to do an updated, revised, and extended What is Film Noir for episode 10. Thanks so much as always, everybody. Take care. See ya.